Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. We've got another great Bradley lecture for you this week. Irving Kristol's 1994 ruminations on countercultures, past, present, and future. As food for thought, I'd like to encourage our listeners to think about the American family and those whose primary political goal is to preserve it or restore it. There are such people worried about how technology erodes the family unit, not to mention welfare, pornography, divorce, and single parenthood. If you're a certain kind of conservative, you might trace wider social and political problems to family breakdown, and your first step towards widespread improvement of American life might begin by addressing it. I've just mentioned some arenas you might try to reform. Welfare policy geared towards encouraging marriage and parental engagement with children, laws curbing the spread of pornography, or even forcibly reducing the influence of big tech and social media platforms to try and restore healthy social behaviors in children. What's more difficult to pin down, though, is how culture, broadly speaking, factors into this equation. To the godfather of neoconservatism, Irving Kristol, it was not culture, but counterculture, particularly the countercultures in the vein of radical movements in the 1960s and 70s that represent a major threat to the nuclear family. Countercultures, crystal reasons, represent a search for transcendence beyond religion and the preference of autonomy and choice over debts to those who have died or have yet to be born. Both of these countercultural impulses pull people away from a sense of familial obligation and towards radical individualism or romantic statism. Ironically, those who today fashion themselves defenders of the family frame Crystal's neoconservatism as the great enemy of traditionalism and even as a counterculture itself. Crystal's lecture counters that, as ever, the enduring spirits of postmodern countercultures and its political form, socialism, are what really deserve scorn and pushback with socialism growing more popular in the United States than it has been in decades. Among young Americans, it's now more popular than capitalism. Crystal might suggest that fighting against socialism today and its animating spirit of counterculturalism is the best way to salvage and restore the formative unit of dignified American life, the family. With that, here's Irving Crystal's 1994 Bradley lecture, Countercultures, Past, Present, and Future. British or French, the two countries I know best, is because we have had neoconservatism, and they have not. And as I go along, I'll try to elaborate that point and explain why we benefit from having neoconservatism in our inventory, as it were, and how badly they miss it in England and France. I'll categorize my remarks under the following headings. Neoconservatives, social policy, neoconservatism on the culture, neoconservatism influence on political thought, and neoconservatism influence on economic thought. That last will be as brief as possible since there are probably economists in this audience. <laughs> However, I'll, uh, I'll still talk about supply-side economics and what its contribution is to American politics and to conservative politics in America, never mind economics. Social policy. One of the things that distinguishes our culture now is the need, the crying demand for experts. On any issue that comes up, we want to hear experts. The medical issue, political issue, economic issue, foreign policy issue, it doesn't matter. 
We want to hear experts, and if we can't get experts, we'll bring in Hollywood actors who played experts. But such is our great demand for experts that nothing will appease it. And one of the things that neoconservatism has done is to supply experts in the social sciences to the conservative armory. It's not realized that the social sciences, insofar as they are conservative, have their indebtedness to neoconservatism, not to traditional conservatism, which is interested in economics, but not in sociology. Neoconservatism, in contrast, very little, has contributed very little to economics, properly speaking, but a lot to sociology. This goes back to my own connection. This goes back to my days at City College in the late 30s, and alcove number one, the left-wing anti-Stalinist alcove, and there I came across a reprint of an article which was being passed around among all of us left-wing kids as if it was Samistat. It was an article in the very first issue of the American Sociological Review, which was 1936, volume one, number one. And it was by a man who subsequently became quite famous as a sociologist, Robert K. Merton. Robert K. Merton is still with us, I'm glad to say. And this article, for us, who were, you know, truths. And we rediscovered this truth courtesy of Robert Merton's article. The result is that uh, a whole group of people associated with ACO number one went to Columbia to do graduate work on the sociology. I mean, if you can't subscribe to socialism, you may as well be a sociologist. Um, <laughs> the next best thing. And they went there to study under Robert K. Burton. And they included Daniel Bell, Seymour Martin Lipset. Peter Rossi, Philip Selznick, Nathan Glazer, and several others who have, in fact, played a significant role in neoconservative social thought. We have a terrible problem. All these people, how are we going to educate them to profitably spend their leisure days and weeks and months? And this did not sound plausible to me. Uh, it sounded too good to be true. And it didn't sound plausible to other people. Dan Bell got himself appointed to the President's Commission on Automation to give a report to the President of how to cope with this emerging problem. And his colleague, with whom who, the two of them wrote the report, Robert Solo of MIT, later on a Nobel Prize winning economist, and originally a contributor to the public interest in later years, not a contributor to the public interest. <laughs> Um, the two of them wrote this report and decided, you know, there was really not much to it. That uh, I mean, automation means computers, and computers do things, but in the end, it's not going to be a problem of leisure. And uh, that's the sort of thing that was happening. And it was then that Dan and I decided maybe we should start the public interest. Um, you know, if these things can happen, if the whole intellectual and media community can get excited by something that was nothing. So as I say, we started the magazine. I remember coming down to Washington. I didn't know anything about Washington. I remember coming down to Washington to have lunch at the uh, Brookings Institution to tell them about this new magazine we were starting, seeking their contributions. We still regard ourselves as liberals at that time, though. I guess you might say revisionist liberals. And uh, people at Brookings mainly 
decided they didn't like the title of the magazine and criticized us for that, and that's all I remember. But they learned to like the magazine. Anyhow, at, it was at that time there was the war on poverty, which some of you may remember, flowing from uh, Michael Harrington's New Yorker article and then his book. Now, you know, I knew Michael Harrington, and as a matter of fact, I rather liked him. We were on good, friendly terms. And um, one thing I know about Michael Harrington, charming, charming, and always wrong. <laughs> always wrong. Uh, Michael Harrington was never right on any issue of social thought. Um, and so I, something told me that his approach to poverty wasn't right. And then in our group around the public interest was Pat Moynihan, who had worked with Lyndon Johnson on uh, the war on poverty. And I asked him about it, and he said, look, Lyndon Johnson didn't have the faintest idea what these people were doing with the war on poverty. He thought it was some good old-fashioned thing, you know, training poor people how to get jobs and how to work and how to take care of themselves. Didn't realize that he signed a bill which encouraged all poor people to organize and fight City Hall and thereby eradicate poverty. Uh, of course, the money then went to the people who were leading the fight on, against City Hall, who did very well out of the war on poverty. But in any case, this struck all... Well, most of us, by the way, came from working-class or low-middle-class families, and this conception of a war on poverty struck us as absolutely the wrong way to go. And so we began writing about it. Uh, criticizing it, and that was our first venture into neoconservative social criticism of the conventional beliefs. Everything was going along swimmingly from the liberal point of view until one of our contributors, James Coleman, no longer with us, alas, did a massive study on integrated school and did they improve educational performance, particularly of minorities. And uh, his conclusion was there may be nice in many ways, made desirable in many ways, but they had no effect whatsoever on the performance of minorities. The family was infinitely more important. Well, studies of that kind have been coming out ever since by people like Jim Coleman. He died a true blue liberal. And welfare reform, crime and delinquency, you know, broken windows, which now get so much attention as a way of fighting crime, the truth about the culture wars is very simple. It looks like a war of ideas, but in the end, it is a war for the control of institutions. You, you know, you make fun of fights between academics over all sorts of issues, conservative versus liberal, uh, socialist versus right. We in America fought the culture wars, and we sort of lost, though not entirely, and I'll come back to that. We produced, for instance, a bunch of very good magazines which you do not find in France and you do not find in England, and that's religion. In the United States, religion is, it has always been part of popular culture, not of the elite culture. But emphasis on religion resulted in a completely new way of fighting the culture. For instance, in the United States, religion is part of our popular culture, not of our high culture. That's changed a bit in recent years as a result of importing from Europe. Leo Strauss became a significant factor in the cultural field. He was a professor of uh, political philosophy at the University of Chicago. He wrote a series of essays called Athens versus Jerusalem. And his point is, yeah, you choose one, but you, there's no escaping the two. They are 
always there. It's an eternal choice. Athens versus Jerusalem. Rationalism as against some form of revelation. And Straussians moved in on what was an empty area and began to fill it. And Straussians, not being religious, were able to do a lot that a religious person could not have. Straussians were respectful of religion, very respectful. Now, the importance of the Straussians is, we're talking about you know, five dozen scholars, uh, most of whom ended up in Washington because they couldn't get jobs in the university because their, their, their politics were conservative. They understood that when you're talking about religion in America, it's the morality that counts. That's what religion in America is about. It's not about higher dialectics of faith. You don't have to learn Greek and Latin. You don't bother with theology, but the fact remains that the moral dimension is what counts. And so Straussians got jobs in political science. They came to Washington getting jobs in government, and they played a very important role in the culture wars by keeping intellectuals pro-religious without being dogmatic about it. It is perfectly respectable to take your children to Sunday school and to go to synagogue or church uh, regularly. And whether you believe or not is not the issue. That is between you and God. But whether you are a member of a community of believers, that is the issue. Whether you are a member of a community that holds certain truths sacred, that is the issue. In any case, the culture wars lost in the universities, won in the churches so far. And uh, how that will work out remains to be seen. But it does mean that we there's been nothing like that in Europe. Nothing at all like that. Leo Strauss' own writings have only within the past five years been available in Europe. And the result is that we developed a group of professors who were pro-religious but themselves may or may not believe and uh, were civilized in their religious beliefs. That is, they thought religious beliefs are good for a civilized human being to have. And if you have them long enough, you'll be a better human being. Let me now move on to the influence on conservative political thought. It's very hard to explain to people today what conservative thought was like prior to 1960. Now, what happened is that neoconservatism came along. College-educated people, conservative, who weren't satisfied just having a political philosophy based on Herbert Spencer's Our Enemy, the State, and Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Two books, estimable in their own way, but really quite irrelevant to current concerns. And you can't give those books to young people and expect them to respond positively. And I must say, it was the neoconservatives who made a radical change, very important change, that the enemy of conservatism was not the state, but liberalism. That is, the state could be neutral, even if the state did more than we thought states should. Well, not important, you know. Civilization does not decline because Social Security is run by the state. A lot of these things we can live with. But liberalism, which teaches an alternative set of ideas, an alternative set of political thoughts and political obligations, is another matter. There was a big change that took place in the 
with the election of Ronald Reagan. People forget about this. Ronald Reagan admired Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, which sort of shocked Republicans. But they went along. What, else, what alternative did they have? But that completely changed the basic accent of American conservatism. If you can say that FDR was a great president and still be a conservative, the conservatism you have is not the conservatism that existed 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's something quite new. Attitudes toward the welfare state changed uh, with Ronald Reagan. I just think back to Barry Goldwater's campaign. Did he reach out to religious conservatives? I don't don't think so. I don't remember it, I must say. Uh, Ronald Reagan did, though Ronald Reagan himself was not exactly an enthusiastic believer, uh, to put it mildly. But nevertheless, emergence of religious conservatives as part of a neoconservative upsurge has played a very important part in American role. It has produced conservatives who are anti-liberal but not anti-state, are willing to use the state for certain important purposes, reform the state, of course, but who do not have that instinctive hatred of the state that you find in Herbert Spencer's book, Our Enemy, the State, and which is the attitude that prevailed prior to the 1960s. It's that influence on conservative political thought is with us today. Now to one last most contentious thing, supply-side economics. When Ronald Reagan was running for president, he appointed a council of economic advisors, 12 like the disciples, and the question of a tax cut came up. Jack Kemp had uh, learned about supply-side economics from Jude Wanisky, who spent a year here in Washington at the American Enterprise Institute writing his book, and uh, Jack Kemp very close to Ronald Reagan, and he persuaded Ronald Reagan that this was the right thing to do, to cut tax rates. And Ronald Reagan didn't understand economics at all, but he did understand politics. And he thought, yeah, cutting taxes is pretty good. I mean, as against the prevailing conservative wisdom, first you cut government expenditures, then you cut taxes. That's the responsible way to proceed. Well, it's the responsible way not to proceed, because, in fact, you never do cut spending enough to cut taxes. The only way to cut taxes is to cut spending. The only way to cut spending is you cut taxes first, and you force them to cut spending. And Ronald Reagan understood this immediately. His Council of Economics advisors did not. But they were also very shrewd people, men of the world, understood politics, and he said to them, I'm going for tax cuts, cuts in tax rates, and they decided they were all for cuts in tax rates. And so the council, his Council of Economic Advisors, this was before he was elected, his Council of Economic Advisors decided they were all for something called supply-side economics, namely, well, namely what? You cut tax rates and force politicians to cut spending and the important thing in any case was not the balanced budget. Yes, a cut in tax rates preceding a cut in spending means a deficit, a large deficit, but never mind the deficits, and there are deficits. A deficit resulting from cut in tax rates will create incentives, encourage people to invest, encourage economic growth, and sooner or later you'll get enough economic growth to compensate for the deficits. In other words, 
they were saying there were good deficits and bad deficits. And the good deficit, deficits are deficits that encourage growth, and bad deficits are deficits that discourage growth. Deficits, deficits resulting from giving people money to spend does not encourage growth. Might for a month or two, but not over the longer run. That was supply-side economics. And I must tell you, Ronald Reagan put it through. Most of his economists didn't understand it. To this day, Alan Greenspan doesn't quite understand it. Or if he does understand it, doesn't agree with it. And Alan is a very smart man. But look, he's an economist formed in a certain way at a certain time. And he just can't see things the way supply-side economists see things. I liked supply-side economics. I wrote about it quite a lot in the Wall Street Journal. What did I like about it? Well, you're going to play football. You can't be defensive all the time. Sooner or later, you have to try to score a touchdown. You have to figure out plays that are offensive. Conservatives, ever since World War II, have been playing defensive economics. I mean, they, you know, they would say, got to balance the budget, got to cut government spending. And uh, Democrats would say, uh, we need the money for this, that, or the other thing. And in the end, they won. They would then screw up and conservatives come back and the conservatives would try to cut the deficit and probably fail. They almost never were able to cut the deficit. And the, the supply side said, you'll cut the deficit by growth. And they said, oh, that's nonsense. Supply side economics said the function of economic policy is not stability, it's growth. Growth takes priority. And if you think that's banal, I mean, just look at what the IMF and the World Bank are doing in to poor Argentina. Argentina, you know, its economy is an absolute mess. It's running a huge deficit. And what are they recommending? Cut government spending, raise taxes. Absolutely the worst advice you could give any government, I think. That was the supply-side argument. But the, the older non-supply-side uh, economics still prevails in large sections of the business community, in large sections of the banking community, less so in the... Uh, academic community, but the academic community doesn't like it really because it, it leads to free enterprise and they have other ambitions for economic theory and economic programs. It's very hard to get people to understand that not all tax cuts are equal. I mean, a tax cut, you can't, two tax cuts involving the same amount of money can be very different in their effects depending on how they're structured, depending on what it is they tax cut penalizes something. Uh, and what it is they encourage. Tax cut encourages something. In any case, a focus on economic growth has become a centerpiece of the Republican Party's economic program. not clear that they know what they mean. But nevertheless, it's worked. I mean, we have done very well with versions of supply-side economics. Not The timing was a little off. It took 20 years instead of two. Well, all right. That happens. Um, but uh, it got there in 20 years. Now, essentially, that's the thing I want to cover. What has happened is a really nothing less than a revolution of thought, I think, as a result of the intrusion into public debate of that group of people we call neoconservatives. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI, thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, 
please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.